This podcast is part of the project No Master Territories, Feminist Worldmaking and the Moving Image, a traveling exhibition and screening program dedicated to the histories of feminist nonfiction film and video, concentrating on the period of the 1970s to the 1990s. My name is Ilat Peleg. I'm one of the curators of this project, together with Erika Balsam. No Master Territories came together through many encounters and conversations with film scholars, researchers, filmmakers, and artists working around the world. This series of four podcasts came out of and extends some of these very special encounters. You're about to listen to a conversation between Laura Hortas Milan and Trintin Minha. Hello. My name is Laura Huertas Millan. I'm an artist, filmmaker, educator, and researcher. Today, I have the pleasure to introduce the conversation that I had with award-winning filmmaker, writer, composer, and distinguished professor of the Graduate School at the University of California, Berkeley, Trinity Minha. Her work includes nine feature-length films produced since 1982, honored in over 64 retrospectives around the world. She has also produced several large-scale multimedia installations and has published numerous books such as Love Seidel, Walking with the Disappeared, Elsewhere Within Here, Cinema Interval, and Woman Native Other writing postcoloniality and feminism, to name a few. In the following conversation, we will talk about her latest piece, What About China?, a film which has already received the New Vision Award at CPH Docs Film Festival, the Golden Gate Persistence of Vision Award at the San Francisco International Film Festival, and the Prix Bartok at the Jean Rouge Film Festival. Before delving into the production process of this film, I took the liberty to ask Minha about the beginning of her moving image practice. Talking about beginnings, we also evoked how we met five years ago at the Flaherty Seminar in the United States. The Flaherty Seminar is an annual space of debate around the roles and forms of non-fiction filmmaking. I am amazed that the reunion today with Minha, five years after our first encounter at the Flaherty, is made possible within another event, the exhibition No Masters Territories, where underestimated women creators are also central. Minha and I are both in-between filmmakers, and being a woman is also a common denominator between us, as it is a flattening illusion, what is being a woman in the first place. But here we are, building bridges across time and space for a necessary reckoning to acknowledge and honor our predecessors. I'm grateful to be part of this assembly. Given our common ongoing critical dialogue with documentary practices and a shared anti-ethnographic impulse in our film beginnings, our following conversation also unfolds questions of diaspora, cinema and everyday resistance. Enjoy. It's such an honor and a pleasure for me to have this opportunity to have a conversation with you. or rather um, continuing a conversation that we started a few years ago. I recall the time when we met each other. It was in 2017 during the Flaherty Seminar. And I remember the very day that we met each other. It was in the car that would bring us to Colgate University. And I remember seeing you and hearing your name and feeling so impressed and a little bit overwhelmed because I've seen your work for such a long time since I was a student and reassembled was a very important film for me and so getting to know you and have the honor to show my films with your films and start a conversation together was 
a really beautiful moment for me. So I'm really glad that it can continue now in 2022. And I also remember that the in-betweenness that was reclaimed in your first works made such a deep impression on me as a young artist and filmmaker. And I strongly identified with that position. And I recall that it was really rare to um, to hear to or to um, to experience a position like this um, in films or um, in writings. So this might be a not starter for a conversation, but I really wanted to start acknowledging how important your work has been for me as a filmmaker and as a researcher. And I know that the exhibition No Master's Territory that will open in June 2022 has borrowed this title from one of your writings. And the influence that you've had in, in a number of generations of thinkers and filmmakers is substantial. And I feel so lucky and privileged for this opportunity. And I want to take it to thank you <laughs> in person for the work that you've accomplished and what you have given us. And as an artist and filmmaker who is younger and has looked up on you, I cannot underestimate the cost and difficulties of taking position in so many, if not all of your writing pieces and films. And that's also why I wanted to come back in time to your earlier works and maybe start the discussion there. Um, also thinking about the young filmmakers and writers who are looking and reading uh, your pieces today and wonder where did you find the strength to start with such a powerful work? <laughs> How was it for you at the beginning of your practice? So maybe we can start from there. Um, if you want to speak about, for example, Reassemblage, your first film, which was made in uh, 1982, how it was produced and what was the initial idea, what brought you to cinema? Thank you so much, um, Laura, for these very kind words. And everything that you mentioned about the Flaherty seminar is similar for me. I was very happy at the time to have met you and to be able to see some of your films, which are very unique. I love very much this idea of beginnings, actually. And you can see that in my last film. The reason I work with uh, Xia Wu Guo is precisely because her writing is very much about beginnings. She's able to give us the feeling, the um, emotions, and the discovery of beginnings. I actually even talk about reassemblage in terms of a non-knowing approach, you know, because um, all these uh, films on documentary, on message, on meanings, on trying to introduce other cultures and so on, has something to do with um, the question of um, beginnings. And most of the time we present the material as if we know everything ahead of time. Even when we film, we are not presenting the way we film it. In the editing, we try to make it linear, like this is the beginning, the, the middle, and, and the end. But actually, everything has to do with this moment, this encounter, the moment of beginning. And in reassemblage, the question of non-knowing has to do with how we produce knowledge, how we package, for example, how... Um, films that are on TV and in Hollywood tend to package knowledge. They package it so that you have the feeling that after you sit for just 25 minutes or so, you know something about the culture. But my approach is the contrary, to come in fresh and to get rid of the, the luggage that we have when we go to another place, to another culture, and when we encounter people um, anew. So this is what I refer to as a non-knowing approach. You can do all the research you want before you come in, but once you are on site, 
you have to to leave your luggage behind, and just approach the subject or whatever is in front of you, whatever you caught on camera, as something very fresh. It's very close to your film because that means that when you look and listen, it's very intense. It's it's an attentive, a deep attention to whatever happened right there. And when you are in this mode of making, you are not thinking about story, message, meaning, about wrapping up knowledge, about uh, all these questions that makes your work consumable. Rather, you are just encountering the reality in a very fresh way. Non-knowing is not ignorance. You are actually approaching it without all the luggage, even though you may have done a lot of research before. And you can always bring in afterwards. But the moment, the beginning, the moment when things happen and begin are very important moments for me. So this is what Reassemblage is offering as well, like a very fresh look. And by bringing in this fresh look, I am actually uh, offering something to young filmmakers like I was at the time, uh, something that allows them not to be intimidated by this whole apparatus of cinema. Like, for example, if you think about budget, it's so um, intimidating to think about it. Like uh, many of the documentary filmmakers whom I met afterwards who told me, if you don't have 300,000 for a film, you can't even make it. And today, when I offer, should we come up with a budget like 300,000 for this film? The answer from the producer would be immediately no, not enough, right? So you have to come up with at least something like 450 or half a million. Uh, for me, I've never worked with these numbers. That is not because I don't want these numbers. If you have lots of money, then you can distribute the task and uh, do it in a way that is not so stressful for you. But if you don't have the money, I can still make the film. I'm doing all the tasks myself from A to Z. So this is what I call an independent filmmaker, uh, not the kind of independent filmmaker that you find in a lot of events like Sundance Square. It's like independence for them is just like a stepstone. You um, go through independence in order to get in the film industry. But no, this independent is really something that allows you to be independent from all the apparatus of uh, the film industry. So this is something that could invite a lot of freedom for young filmmakers, that you are able to do something from A to Z and that you are producing, for example, a film according to the budget that you have. Or if you don't have the budget, uh, like one of the filmmakers in the in the Philippines whom I knew at the time, it's Kitlat Tahimik, right? He said it's almost like uh, not having enough money to uh, fill up your your gas tank, but each time instead of buying a pack of cigarettes, he's buying some gas and then putting <laughs> little by little the gas in in order to make the film. So it takes him a long time to make the film, but still he made it all by himself. So this is for me the, the second aspect of, of filmmaking, how we conceive of independent filmmaking. And uh, the third thing as stated in the film itself is how this refusal to package knowledge lead us to a challenge of the way we present the material so that whatever you see, whatever you bring in your camera, is immediately uh, also how you see it. The what and the how always go together. I was also wondering about this tension between not knowing and following the process and being self-sufficient. And yet the film starts with a very powerful statement that is extremely well written and has become a sort of iconic sentence or even device. Um, when we hear at the beginning, we hear your voice saying, 
scarcely 20 years were enough to make 2 billion people to define themselves as underdeveloped. I do not intend to speak about, just speak nearby. I wonder about the tension between a process led by not knowing and then how two sentences like this, so powerful, so compact, and so, you know, uh, combative, strong, um, arise. So how is this process of writing and how does it uh, build a dialogue or a, a conversation or sometimes even a confrontation with the images that you that you produce, that you make? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You said it very well. I think you already pinned down uh, a number of um, relevant you know, questions in relation to that statement. First of all, that statement is not directly uh, commenting about what you see on the screen, but it situates the situation of the so-called third world. We have the tendency to think that if we have a camera, we go to another culture, to another place, or even within our own culture, right? We focused on a community or on, on a situation, and we give ourselves the license to speak about it. So this speaking about is what I really raise as problematic, that you always speak about someone, about a culture, about, for example, a situation, as if the other is not there, it could not talk back, for example. So if you position yourself nearby, in proximity, you can speak with, you can speak nearby, and you can speak to. In the film, I have mainly chosen speaking nearby, which means that what is whatever is being said in a commentary is not a comment that is directly uh, saying something about the image, but rather it has its own independence, it has its own strength, and yet it is very tightly connected with what you see, but connected in a, in a free way. This is very important, this uh, speaking nearby as a way of voicing and a way of uh, leaving room for the other to come in and to contest, to talk back, to fill in the gap. I usually write um, before, during, and after the making of the film. So once I have gotten the image, when I was uh, on the site, when I was filming, um, I already start writing. So the writing is with whatever I shot, and then the writing comes uh, after in the editing. And uh, this during and after is what inform the, the statement. So that at the same time, you are approaching it in a very free way. When I go to the editing phase, I may change them a little bit or I may uh, eliminate them altogether. So you have a visual track that needs to be edited. You have a soundtrack that needs to be edited and you have a verbal track that needs to be edited. And the three are being edited together, not one before the other. I remember also that um, when we met at the Flaherty Seminar, we were talking about how the film was received when you uh, screened it at the Flaherty. Um, and if, I'm, uh, if I remember well, it was screened three times over the time in, um, at the Flaherty. And if I remember well, each time it was controversial, right? It's 82 or 83. At that time, I didn't know anything about the Flaherty. I was just invited. And I just came back from Africa, from Senegal. So I come in without knowing any authority, any personality or anything about the Flaherty. But of course, you know, in the process, I learned that the Flaherty is considered to be where the cream of the cream of documentarians come and meet together. And so the immediate response, you know, was, was very strong hostility, especially 
when it started out with a man, I don't know who that man is. It's just that the man acted very with a lot of authority and how other people refer to him, tell me that he is an authority in documentary. And he was just saying how my film was a disaster. And so I was a little bit surprised because at the time, of course, you are always aware of the kind of thing that you may provoke in the viewer. But I was not expecting that viewer to be in front of me. <laughs> so he was very hostile and saying that it was a disaster. And then when I asked him why, it's like the attitude is, oh, don't you even know why your film is a disaster? And so he said, all oh, the silences, the silences in your film. I have written and talked about the question of silence uh, in many ways. Of course, silence is not opposed to language. Or silence can be such that even in language, you are silent. And I think that that use of silence is very beautiful in your films. You know, how, for example, you give space to the subject and how you let them be in their silence, right? I think that's one of the aspects that I found very wonderful and beautiful in your films. But, it, but in mind, for example, silence is also a moment of rest. You know, you have all this image that comes in cuts and the rassemblage is made with a lot of cuts, 700 cuts for 40 minutes. And uh, so that it's very ephemeral. The image comes in in many cuts and so the moment it goes black and silent, and here silent is truly silence. It's not the kind of silent that you have in cinema, uh, where you always have some kind of ambient sound in the background, like room tone or um, nature sound or anything like that. No, here silence is a hole in the soundtrack. You are not supposed to do that. The golden rule is that you have to fill in the soundtrack. So that's just one example of what really bothers the professional filmmakers and the people at the Flarty. But on the other hand, there was like half of the room of people so enthusiastic and defending the film in such passionate way that I didn't even expect. I didn't even have to talk on that day because <laughs> you have the two sides that are really uh, fighting each other and one that really passionately uh, support and the other one passionately condemning. Um, so this is another aspect that I was saying earlier for young filmmakers. If you let yourself be intimidated by that, and it was quite an intense you know, experience, then you would not be making any film anymore. You know, your first encounter with the audience is such that someone call your film a disaster, for example, then you won't be making any film. So that kind of hostility now, you know, when you see where it comes from, you know, it can actually inform you a lot about your audience, about the audience that, and audience expectation. And how, once you are informed about that, you can accept or you can reject. You know, you are not submitted in any way to these kind of reactions. Mm. Well, thank you for the generosity to speak about uh, this very early film because I, I can imagine how many, uh, how many times you have um, had to speak about this film. And as a filmmaker who also uh, travels a lot with my own films, I know that it's not easy to speak about the same work for such a long time. So thank you for sharing this with us and. I'm also uh, very compelled by what you said about silence and the fact that I relate the silence that you were proposing in that film with what you said about, about refusal. And I think it's interesting that we both met at the Flaherty Seminar, which refers to Robert Flaherty and Francis Flaherty, of course, but the fact that there is something anti-ethnographic in your early positions and the positions that came afterwards, but also in my own work, in that particular space and place, which is, you know, so related to, um, to Robert Flaherty. 
I think that there is something really interesting about that that uh, experience that your film um, made happen, um, and the controversy around uh, those questions. I think that I also feel that the silence in your film, there's a sense of brutality of that silence and the sense of the brutality of the refusal. And I really identify identified as a young filmmaker with that um, struggle. I wanted now to focus on the new commission that um, has been produced for the exhibition at the Haus der Kultur and der Welt um, that will open in June 2022. Um, this new commission is a new film called What About China? And it's 135 minutes long. And it's a real time experience, I must say. And I wanted to start asking you about the process. What is this film about for the people who haven't seen it? And, and how was it produced? How, how did you make it? Yes, actually, um, this notion of time and of film as time and duration is also something that I see beautifully realized in your film. So there's something about um, the invisibility of time. And it's what in, in the film world we call the fourth dimension. And I have made precisely a film called The Fourth Dimension when I went from analog film, like 16 millimeter and 35 millimeter. When I first start my digital film, it was the fourth dimension. So I was featuring the dimension of time in cinema. Of course, the fourth dimension also means other things, you know, like for example, in um, Japanese context, uh, because the film was shot in Japan, the, the novelists always talk about a fourth corner of reality that you, you don't see, that remain invisible to your eye. And then you have the spiritual dimension of the fourth dimension, which is the uh, notion of light. So time, light, for example, and the fourth corner of reality is what that film is actually offering through digital technology. Just to, to link it back to the length that you mentioned of uh, what about China, I usually don't know how long a film is. So that's why what I do never fit into uh, squarely into what television uh, expect from a film. So they usually expect you to do a 26 minute um, or um, 57 or 56 minute or uh, ultimately an 87 minute. So the fourth dimension, like uh, as a joke, you know, I did it at 87 minutes, but I know very well that in television, they favor 26 or 56, but not 87. It's very rare that any film of 87 would fit into television. But it's uh, it's like a joke on the kind of constraints that television puts on time and on the work. So time in many sense of the term, time within the image, time in the editing, time in the overall of the work, time in historical terms, the ancient and the modern, the traditional and the contemporary, all of that has been dealt with, not only in the fourth dimension, but earlier in another film of mine called Naked Space, Living Its Round. And this film, in a way, um, is not far from What About China, because it's a film that focuses on the rich, the wealth of uh, vernacular architecture in West Africa. So you went through West Africa with all these vernacular architecture that look, some of them look just like futuristic architecture. That architecture is also one of the area that you um, brought out very differently, but very strongly in your film through the traces of ruins and abandoned buildings. I do teamwork with Jean-Paul Bourdieu who is an architect and a photographer and a visual artist. So he has a very strong passion 
for this vernacular architecture, an architecture that is done by the people for the people. And so when I go to all these villages, one of the aspects that we focus on is this architecture and how the notion of dwelling, for example, comes out with this architecture. So that's West Africa. I was focusing on the, the quality of light, the uh, quality of space, the music and the color, all of which you know are very important in architecture, but also extremely important for cinema. So that the elements of architecture and the elements of cinema go together with what about China? Again, you know, we were traveling in villages that are considered to be uh, the core of traditional architecture. And they are traditional, but they are not dead. On the contrary, in the film, you see that it's full of life. These uh, old architecture are lived in. They are full of life, which is very different from what they have become today. You can see, for example, with the architecture, the Hakka architecture um, in uh, southern China, which is featured at the beginning of the film. You can see that that architecture has been used, for example, in Hollywood film like Mulan. <laughs> but in Mulan, you know, everything is rebuilt uh, and presented in a way uh, that is extremely, for me, lifeless. They try to put life in it and they put all kind of action in it, but it is lifeless. It is not lived in. It's really an architecture that is dead. And this is the meaning that people usually give to traditional. But for me, traditional simply means different in time, in differential, the differentials of time. So it is actually something that you can relate to the virtual today, something that is very close to our virtual and digital technology, something that remains at the same time visible and invisible. And so the film focuses on this aspect of disappearing and disappearance, something that has disappeared and something that is disappearing, for example. But these are all notions that are very important to cinema. We can say, for example, that every image in cinema is an image of memory. But when I dated it, for example, in What About China? I said, um, China called me in uh, 1993 and 94. And again, it is calling me now. Why? 1993-94, I situate it as the moment when uh, there is this underground movement of cinema called the sixth generation. And you have a film like Beijing Bastard that became very well known that came out and that quote and unquote looks amateurish, but then it is extremely um, also provocative. And it is a film that is not at all concerned about resolution, about quality, about composition, about all these old conventions. With that in mind, I think um, it 1993 situates when I was shooting the film, but it is now that I'm editing it. And since all image in cinema is an image of memory, what we have here is a situation of historical traces. Images are historical traces. They are offering something that is at the same time visible and invisible. So there's one statement in the film that says, um, offering or presenting the visible in order to entice the invisible to come up because we tend to focus everything on what is visible. But what comes with the visible is so important. This is what affects us most. It's not what we see, but how China is looking at us in this shot, in every relation of self and other. The self is defined by the other as well. And it's not just the self that is defining the other. So this kind of reflexivity or this kind of turning around of the mirror 
so that the mirror is not simply looking at out there, but it's looking in here as well. Uh, you have a situation of the, an encounter in which the hinterland of China is not simply uh, over there in what we call China, but the hinterland of China is within us. Indeed, time irrigates every single aspect of your film. And um, even with the fact that the rushes in SD were made, as you said, between uh, 1993 and 1994, and that, if I understood well, you were looking at these rushes again during the pandemic and the last uh, year, which is a moment where our relationship with time was collectively completely uh, transformed because of what we were going through. And when I was looking at the film, I was really thinking about this stratification of time from images that are the memory of decades ago with a technology that is considered now obsolete. So something that is clearly categorized as being the past. And then our present in which we are redefining what does it mean to be here and what does it mean to be elsewhere. I was wondering if this cohabitation of perceptions of time uh, also informed how the film was edited and how it was built. There's a thread in the film that um, stands out very strongly. And that thread is about the notion of harmony. You can take it aesthetically or um, politically or spiritually. And uh, also at the base you know, of all this uh, spiritual, political and aesthetic is the notion of music uh, because harmony was first defined in musical terms. And everything actually that you have in the film, the definition of harmony or serenity, definition of tranquility, whatever I gave in the film is actually quoted from classical work like I Ching and also from classical Chinese writers. So um, even though you may really wonder about this definition, um, it is very important to remember that um, colonial thinking tend to uh, summarize, in other words, tend to accumulate and summarize in a way that give uh, consistency or coherence to a definition. So anything that is outside of that logic and outside of that coherence is immediately considered to be wide. Michel Foucault has pointed to that very nicely in the beginning of one of his books where he mentioned how categories are treated in Chinese work, in Chinese literature. And most of the time you have um, definitions that are mind-boggling. They have nothing to do with the kind of definition that Westerners come up with. But of course, for me, they have their own logic. They have their own wide context, and they have their own harmony, the way that they bring out all the elements of life, of the earth, for example, of the cosmos. So just to, to give that as, as a background, but time here is like a river. So there's a statement that say time is a river. What if the ancient is not past and the modern is neither present nor futuristic? This notion of linear time is something that is very close to the system of Western metaphysics, where time is very linear. So you can say very um, comfortably, very safely, that this is past. This is a phenomenon of the past. But uh, the past as it is evoked in, in this film, uh, What About China, is precisely what is present. And that's why I was asking this question, why is China calling me now? And um, 
precisely because of political events in the world and also uh, events around the pandemic. It has been politicized to the detriment of the people. Because of that, we have a situation in which no one is really taking full responsibility for what is happening. It is always easier to point to someone else and blame that uh, that person or blame an outside force than taking responsibility for what is happening in in our situation, in our context, for example. So there's no full collaboration. There's all these other interests, political, economical, and so on, that comes in and that divide us rather than uh, pull us together in order to get through this situation. And for me, of course, China being criticized very strongly for having uh, brought in that virus or for having been the origin of that virus is just like what what is uh, what I said in the film. You know, it's like um, blaming someone else or running from the rain and then falling in a river, <laughs> in a pool of water, in other words. They try to uh, run away from the problem, but then you fall into something that is so much uh, more invasive, so much uh, larger in scope. And this is the, the situation that happens in the state, right? It's the the country in the world that has the most problem with the virus. And who could imagine that when, un unless you look at the health system of the U.S., compared to health system everywhere else in the world, that the U.S. is like, um, nobody can afford health, this kind of semi-private health system. And most of the time, only the rich and wealthy can can afford it. Those of us who, are, who don't have a good job or do not have a, a job, for example, would just have no health coverage at all. So this is one of the situations that brings us together with everything that happened with the pandemic in the world. And in the film, I was mentioning also about this mode of working underground, working in the dark, this mode of living with uncertainties. And in a way, it is quite derisive because we are fighting with all kind of technology. But when it comes to a tiny invisible virus, we can do nothing about it. The responsibilities are shared in many ways. And this has to be recognized even in the way that we work. And this is what I meant by this underground mode where I was isolating myself all the time in order to work on this film and to be totally immersed in these images that are partly what we can call the past, but totally in the present. It raises a lot of questions that are very present in our relation to China, especially with the political dimension of harmony, because China has really put forward that notion of harmony in its political approach. And it has been a while that notion was um, actually spread to all level, all political level of society until it was replaced by, what was the other term that was used? Stability, yes. Uh, this is also related to these many, many layers of time that you mentioned. And of course, the other aspect is the artistic aspect of time, that um, the modern is very much defined in the West with the work of people like um, Bertolt Brecht in theater, Picasso, and a number of Cubist artists. But when you look at what uh, these modernists were doing, you can see that, first of all, uh, Bertolt Brecht was very inspired by Chinese and Japanese theater. And um, Picasso was very much inspired by African. You don't want to call them objects, but African art, for example. So when you think about this, the question of what is modern and what is ancient lose all relevance 
because you have a situation where what is most ancient in China in terms of theory in painting, for example, you already have a mobility of look that is brought into the painting that, quote and unquote, can be very modern for today's art. And it is not only modern, but to be more precise, it's postmodern. It's that mobility that comes with digital technology that you can find again in the ancient art of China and in the ancient theory of arts of China. Thinking about the political in your film, there is a constant presence of the collective, of collectivity. Um, you can see it in the architectures. You can see it um, through groups of people uh, gathering in public spaces or sometimes domestic spaces, groups of children. But also um, there's a constant presence of the voice and different voices. So we have your voice, but we also can hear Xiao Lu Guo, who reads excerpts from her book, Ninth Continent, Memoir in and Out of China. Xiao Yue Shan, who reads excerpts from her book of poetry, How Often Have I Chosen Love? Yi Chong, and as I said, your own voice. I was wondering, um, how was the process of gathering this assembly of, of people and voices and how did your collaborators also react to the film once it was finished and how, um, how was the process of choosing the excerpts that were going to be read and the process of recording that and the dialogue that is woven with the images? Yes, this refers back to the isolated mode during pandemic time that <laughs> I mentioned earlier. I wanted a kind of multi-vocality. You have many voices, and the voices uh, are actually um, taking up position in relation to different forms of language. You know, how do you speak? How do you write? And um, for that, Xiaolu Guo, as I mentioned earlier, um, is the first person I thought of, mainly because I was so um, moved by her, by her novel or autobiography, if you want. She has what I call a justness, a just tone, a tone that is exactly as it should be. It's not romantic. It's not praising, it's not demeaning or anything. It just states things the way they are. And for that, it's very difficult in writing. And also, she always come back to the notion of beginning. She offer a very fresh view. If she talks about the four-year-old, it's the view of the four-year-old that she brings in, not the view of the adult, which is very difficult for writers usually to do. Writers usually always write from the point of view of knowledge. So from the point of view adult instead of the four-year-old. But she undoes that. And so one voice is uh, that kind of memoir uh, and novel. And the other voice is poetry. And the way that poetry, for example, can go across time, place, and uh, context very easily but also because it focuses on elements of writing and of images that are common with cinema. And then uh, Yi Zhong is actually bringing out the informative aspect, the mainly statements that are quoted from Chinese sources. So that is the only informative voice. And you can say that's the voice that I usually avoided in my previous film. But in this film, I thought there's something about the architecture that needs to be brought out in that straight forward way, in a, in, in a way that is uh, more like a speaking about. And that is also because um, when we were filming, uh, Jean-Paul was doing all the research on architecture and location, but he was doing it with the assistance of um, a Chinese uh, student who is now also a professor 
So I would say Yi Zhong is actually um, representing the location or the position of that information from the Chinese student. Here you can talk about the politics of multi-vocality as well as a politics of speaking nearby that is very intense because in Weasamblage, the speaking nearby is like self and other, myself and the other, but here the speaking nearby is pursued in 135 minutes. <laughs> so much more in terms of how you can speak with in parallel, in proximity with the image, how you can make something that is uh, relevant to the viewer without submitting the visual, the, the visual to the verbal or to the musical. And music here is the main, uh, the main area of what about China. Everything, you know, about harmony is also about architecture and music. And the music that comes up, the footage of China is 1993-94, but the music is very contemporary but a contemporary that is not opposed to the classical. On the contrary, the use of music here is both classical and very contemporary. You can even say very avant-garde. I also wanted to address and speak about with you, um, which is loss and disappearance. I feel that Loss and disappearance is already contained in the format and the apparatus or the technology that was recording the images. There is also um, the sensation or the feeling of loss contained or experienced when we see the architectures and these spaces and all the contrasts and the friction that you stage in the film between urbanism a world that is changing very quickly and, uh, and worlds that are still in rurality. So we feel that, I feel the imminent disappearance in each of the images that you present that were shot so many years ago. But the third aspect of loss and disappearance that really stayed the longest with me was a sensation of an elsewhere that's experienced in the past and that is being actualized through the film in the present with the consciousness that this past experience will never come back, that it's gone and it's gone and we can evoke it, we can paint it, we can build poems around it, but it's gone. And to me, and I guess that was the most emotional relationship with the film. Um, it, it really reminded me of what the diasporic experience is. And I'm thinking about diaspora as a seed that we carry within, something that has to do with uh, recalling a place that we somehow were linked to and having the sensation that this place is still forever with us and at the same time lost forever. <laughs> this sort of contradiction. So I wanted to end this conversation um, talking with you about diaspora and also addressing a paradox that I live on a personal level through my work, which is thinking about diaspora and this diasporic sensation or experience also as a tricky illusion in the sense that my feeling of that elsewhere that I'm related to and that I experience somehow is very far away from the actual present in that place here and now. And every time I come back to that place, uh, of my origins or where I consider to have my roots, I can feel that for the people who stay there, I left and I am elsewhere. So there's this sense also of paradox of being attached on an emotional and personal and psychological level to a place that has 
that is still so present and gone forever, but a place that is still anchored in a reality here and now. Does that make sense? So there is a really, a, it's, it's really loaded and multi-layered and full of paradoxes. You have so wonderfully um, linked this notion with the diasporic experience. And um, also you raise this question of the elsewhere. Um, I think precisely in, in your film, what didn't disappear is precisely something that is totally invisible, which is that in your film, you succeed to build this kind of um, state of mind uh, that is in between mystery and revelation, right? Something that you reveal because you talk about it and something that remains mysterious, you know, something that comes also with all the landscape of the places that you that you have shot. In my work, I actually wrote about elsewhere within here. So the notion of elsewhere is not opposed to here. The over there and over here is not opposed. There is an elsewhere, but that elsewhere is within here. So that's why the question asked is, what exactly has disappeared? And you brought a reading that is really wonderful. And that reading goes with diaspora. And the other that I can probably point to in this disappearance, I'm never nostalgic of whatever place or something that is material. Uh, I'm not nostalgic of going back to Vietnam, for example. That's never came up in my experience. But what I realize more and more that disappear is that state of mind that is uh, contextual, very contextual, right? So sometimes you lose that beginning, you lose that freshness, you lose that mystery. Uh, the mystery that I felt, for example, when I was in Vietnam, every time I pass through a house, for example, I'm always wondering what kind of internal living exists, uh, what exists behind these walls, what exists within the house. Uh, but now, for example, I going through all these houses in the US, I don't have that feeling anymore. So in what about China? You know, you have this question, what exactly has disappeared? Today, all these traditional housing could be um, rebuilt and offered to tourism, to tourists. It has been done with Hakka housing, where they have reconstructed, rebuilt, sanitized the whole thing for tourists. Tourists can come in and um, visit it. So the form, the material aspect of this building can be preserved. But there is something else that has disappeared. And it is for the viewer to recognize what has disappeared when you see this full of life live in space that the film offered. And you can relate that back to any experience of yours. And if it is a diasporic experience, are you referring, for example, to the disappearance of the houses in which you, uh, the houses, the streets, the uh, landscape or the situation that you grow up with and that is over there? Or are you referring to sometimes I see home in something that is very ephemeral, just in like in a smile of someone, like I said, oh, or in the feeling of the rain with a certain temperature and a certain light, suddenly I said, oh, this is so much like in Vietnam. So it has nothing to do with something that is explicitly material. It has a lot to do with something that has affected you very profoundly, but that is not uh, renderable, you know, that you cannot render in image, in words, or uh, in anything. So that kind of disappearance. Otherwise, you can always talk about archival images you pull out to use. Uh, you can always talk about, as I said earlier, these footage that are considered, since they are low resolution, to be the wretch of the screen, 
and this is a line by um, Kito Steyer, but it's uh, Steyer, but at the same time, you know, it's also a line by Franz Fanon, the wretch of the earth. So you have this kind of hierarchy that is brought in with low and uh, high resolution images and the um, context of a film exhibition, uh, especially in film festivals and so on, that tend to see the past as the past and hence anything that comes from technology of the past is rejected. And only things that are like 4K, 6K, 8K today is being used to offer images to our contemporary audience. So this is being questioned. Oh, thank you for sharing this work with me. I, I think I'm still processing and, and working on the film. It stays for a long time afterwards. Yeah, I was very compelled, as I told you, about this um, tapestry of time and places, even though we, we speak about China. There are so many Chinas uh, in the film through the voices, the images, the times, the places that you record, there's not one single China. And I really stayed with the question, what about the China in us? And I also thought about how present China is in my life, in everyday life, because of the technologies that I use, because of the clothes that I wear, because of the politics that we're going through. And China is... It's really present all the time. No, I wanted to thank you for for the experience and also, again, thank you for your previous work and, and express how happy this conversation makes me and the opportunity to continue sharing about, about cinema and, and writing at large. This is so wonderful, um, Laura, to end on this note, especially about the many Chinas that we experience and the many ways also to approach China. Thank you very much for ending on this. Thank you.